Well, if you'd like to open up to Acts chapter 16, it's a big chunk of scripture we're looking at today. The title is The Five City Tour, Paul's Second Missionary Journey, five of the cities that he went to. Well, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my dad worked for Qantas. He was an electrical engineer for Qantas, and he um, worked for them for about 27 years. And so as children, we got to do lots of travelling overseas. We went to Thailand and to America and also to Europe when I was about 12. Uh, When we went to Europe, it was a great trip. We went to Italy. Did you know you've got to pay to use the bathroom in Italy? It was a bit strange. Uh, We went to France and we uh, had croissants on the pebbled streets of France. And we went across the English Channel and had a look at the white cliffs of Dover as we crossed. It was a great trip for a young kid to go on. Today we're coming to look at Paul's mission to the continent of Europe. And we're thinking about his preaching of the gospel, his amazing preaching of the gospel on his missionary journey. You see, I wonder how we feel about the power of the gospel. Do we really believe that when we share it, people will believe and come to faith? I wonder if sometimes we forget this great power of God's gospel when we share it. Or maybe if we don't even quite believe in its power and so we don't share it. Well, we're thinking about that today. And our question is, what about the gospel's impact? How did the gospel impact this continent of Europe on Paul's second missionary journey? So we're looking through from Acts chapter 16 to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to step by step through this passage today. The first thing we see here is... Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia from verses 6 to 10, Acts chapter 16 and verses 6 to 10. We see here in these verses that God is clearly guiding Paul and his ministry team. See there that he's going through these Roman provinces through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, whatever that looked like. Uh, Then he comes to the border of another province, tries to enter another. But see there, verse 7, the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. And if you're in any doubt that God was directing Paul's ministry, look at what happens in verse 9. During the night, he has a vision of a man standing and asking him to come over to the province of Macedonia, which was the nation of Greece. And Paul gets it. After he's seen the vision, that's what he does. And he goes over there. God is behind Paul's ministry, isn't he? Now, I'm a Cronulla Sharks fan. I used to like going to Shark Park to watch the Sharkies play, and the crowd always went crazy because we had a home ground advantage. Well, God is so much behind Paul in his ministry here. It's like everywhere he goes, he has a home ground advantage. God is working through his life to spread the gospel to the world. So do we think that we have that same advantage as believers when we are sharing God with others? Do we know that he is behind us just as he was behind Paul? You might not be receiving visions to go to Bill Bangor and evangelise, but God is still behind you 
when you minister the gospel to others. He's there and he wants his word to go out. So, on to the five-city tour. The first city we see is Philippi. They sail across to Philippi. They come to Greece and they go up to this Roman colony of Philippi. It was a Roman colony in the nation of Greece. So it was a very Roman place. It was around an area of gold mines and uh, part of a famous war in the past. But because it's a Roman colony, there's no Jewish synagogue. And so Paul has to find somewhere else to preach the gospel. So he's got to find somewhere to preach. Instead of the synagogue, he goes to the local river. It must have been some kind of Jewish thing that they would gather near the river. He goes to the place of prayer and he sits down and he finds some women who have gathered there to worship God. One of them is called Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, she was a worshipper of God, but clearly she didn't know the gospel. We see there that God opens her heart to respond to Paul's message and then she and the members of her house are baptised. So she becomes Paul's first convert on this missionary journey. God works in her and brings her to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord opens her heart to respond. Don't we believe that God can do that for others too? Next thing that happens to Paul and Silas we see is they meet this slave girl who was, we think, demon-possessed. They're going to the place of prayer again, the river, and there's a slave girl that starts to follow them. She had a special gift through the demon possession. We think that she had a spirit by which she could predict the future. And so, well, I guess like what happens to Jesus in the Gospels, the demons notice these servants of God. And this girl, verse 17, is following Paul and the team and shouting, these guys are from the Most High God who are telling you how to be saved. And she keeps this up for days and days. And so Paul becomes so annoyed that he turns around and he exercises the demon. Have a look at verse 18. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, there was a problem with doing that because the owners of this slave girl earned a lot of money from having her predict the future. Obviously, without the demonic influence, she couldn't do that. And so they're a bit annoyed at Paul and Silas for this. And so what do they do? Verse 19, they seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They bring them before the magistrates and complain. Uh, what ends up happening is verse 22, Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten. They are severely flogged and thrown into prison. But we know this wonderful story about the Philippian jailer, don't we? At midnight, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God in prison. When there's a violent earthquake and the prison doors open, the chains come off, and the jailer is about to kill himself because of his failure to keep them. But Paul calls out, tells him not to worry, and this man too becomes a Christian. Don't you love the simplicity of his conversion. He simply asks them, what must I do to be saved? And what do they say? Just believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
Friends, it's as simple as that. That's what we need to tell people. We don't have to be maestros or PhDs in theology to share the gospel. Just tell people to believe in Jesus and they will be saved. And we look at the power of the gospel here. This man and his whole household come to know the Lord. Verse 34, he brings them into his house and sets a meal before them. He's filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. In the end, uh, Paul and Silas are going to leave Philippi and we see that they go back to Lydia's house to say goodbye and encourage the Christians. And so the church of the Philippians was born. Three people converted that we can see and a new church planted by Paul. But his journey doesn't stop there. Where does he go next? To Thessalonica, which was a nearby city. Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece. It's a massive port city. We see in verse 2, chapter 17, verse 2, he goes into the synagogue as his custom was. And for three Saturdays, he's preaching to them about Jesus, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, some people are persuaded, we see there, and join Paul and Silas and believe. But there's also opposition in any gospel ministry, isn't there? We see in verse 5, the Jews were jealous, so they round up some bad characters from the marketplace, form a mob, and start a riot in the city. They can't actually find Paul, uh, but they find his friend Jason and drag him before the city officials. So we know that there's danger there for Paul, and in verse 10 they send him on to a different town, a nearby town called Berea. We see in verse 11 that the Bereans actually listen to Paul and they actually examine the Bible to find out if what Paul had said was true. It's a great reminder to us, isn't it? Don't just listen to the preacher, but examine the Bible to see if what he's saying is actually true. This is what the Bereans do. It says, verse 12, many of them believed in the gospel, the number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But again, the opposition to the gospel. In verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word at Berea, they go to Berea and agitate the crowds. And so Paul needs to move on again. He's sent to the great city of Athens, this centre of the world of philosophy, this centre of the world of wisdom. Athens, what an amazing place. Uh, we were recently on a holiday in Canberra and at the National Museum of Canberra, there was, of Australia, Canberra's not a nation, um, there was an exhibition of the ancient Greeks and so I paid the 20 bucks or whatever to get in and have a look. Tell you, it was, it was amazing. These ancient statues and these ancient weapons of war used by the ancient Greeks, I thought, these things I'm looking at, this statue I'm looking at is a couple of thousand years old. It's probably the thing that Paul saw when he went to Athens. Well, Paul saw the idols of Greece in Athens and it says here, that he was, what does it say? He was greatly distressed in verse 16 to see that the city was full of idols. That word in the Greek, greatly distressed, it meant he was super troubled and provoked about it. 
when Paul saw people worshipping the wrong God, it riled him up inside. Now, we have idolatry in our world too. Sometimes it's a statue that people bow down to, but sometimes it's something else. Um, sport, reputation, whatever we make in our life that's more important than God becomes our idol. Well, we see here how Paul reacts when he sees idols in the world. How do we react? Are we bothered by the idols that we see in our world, by the way that people bring God off his throne? Well, Paul was greatly distressed. So he comes across some philosophers and they drag him to a place called the Areopagus. Uh, that word, Areopagus, uh, in Latin uh, is uh, Mars Hill. It was a, a rocky outcrop in Athens near where the Parthenon is, but it was like a court, not quite a judicial court, but it was a court of ideas. So when someone had a, a new idea they were presenting, they could be brought before this Areopagus where people would judge what they were saying. So Paul's sermon here in Athens is wonderful, isn't it? It's, it's so powerful, it's so, so smart how God helped him preach this sermon that day. He's seen all these idols in Athens, these gods that they were worshipping, but he sees one statue with this inscription, verse 23, to an unknown god. You see, the Greeks in Athens, they were so religious, they just wanted to make sure if there's some god that we've forgotten, we better just allow for him too. So let's have a statue to the unknown God. Paul's saying, well, guys, you want to know something? He's not unknown. I know who he is, and I'm going to tell you about him. So verse 24, this is his sermon in Athens. He tells them that the true God made the world. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in these temples that you've built. Verse 25, he's not served by these priests in your temples. But verse 26, from one man from Adam, he made every nation of men that we would inhabit the whole earth. He determines the times set for us and the exact places where we should live. God does this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Reach out for God, friends. Seek him. Reach out for him and find him. He is not far from each one of us. For Paul says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. It's a, a wonderful sermon. Do you notice how Paul changes the way he preaches when he's preaching to Gentiles? To Jews, he can talk about the Old Testament and all the prophecies. But to Gentiles, he's just saying, hey, there's a God and let me tell you who he is. And then we get to Paul's punchline. Verse 31, God has set a day when he will judge the world. Verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. God's given proof of this judgment, verse 31, by raising Christ from the dead. And look at how they respond, verse 32, when they hear about the resurrection, some of them sneered. The Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. But verse 34, a few of them become followers of Paul and believed. Once again, we're seeing the responses to the gospel. Some will believe and come to know God. Paul then moves on from Athens and he goes to the city of Corinth. I think this is our fifth city today in this five-city tour, his second missionary journey. He goes to Corinth, which again was in Greece. 
it was um, on what's called an isthmus, which is a little peninsula between um, between two land masses. Because Corinth was on this little peninsula near all these harbours, it was a place where sailors would come to regularly. And what do you have in a city where sailors come to? Well, you have sin. Corinth was sin city. It was a red light district. It was known for its sin and wickedness. But the gospel is going to come into this place too. There are cities like this in the world today, aren't there, that still need the power of the gospel to hit them. So Paul comes to Corinth and he meets people who are going to become his two great friends, Aquila and Priscilla. They were Jews who had lived in Rome, but in 49 AD, the emperor of Rome had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome because he was so frustrated with them at the time. And so Priscilla and Aquila have come to Corinth. Their trade was making tents. So was Paul's. So it worked pretty well for them to work together in their trade and get some employment together. So Paul is tent making. He's literally tent making, but he's also tent making, which in our Christian jargon is working and preaching the gospel. But have a look in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy come to Corinth, Paul devotes himself exclusively to preaching. I'm not sure, maybe Silas and Timothy started helping building the tents so Paul could preach. But he devotes himself exclusively to preaching because he knew that needed all of his time. There are some of us who need to devote all of our time to preaching. We need to pray that God would raise those kind of people up. We're facing a minister drought in Australia. Uh, but others of us serve the Lord uh, in our vocations. Presbyterian Minister David Powell uh, from Albury talked about this at our assembly this year. He gave a, a message and he was talking about how as Christians, if you're a doctor or a plumber or whatever, you're not just a doctor or a plumber, you're a Christian doctor and you're a Christian plumber. David Powell's going to write a book for Matthias Media soon which says that we guard the gospel in our lives, whatever our vocation, we're doing it as a Christian. But he also said in his message at assembly, but yes, we do need to raise up more gospel workers. So let's be in prayer for that too. So what happens in Corinth? We see the opposition to the gospel again, verse 6. The Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, and so he shakes out his clothes and he goes next door to the house of Titius Justice, verse 7. The synagogue ruler believes and his entire household, and they believe and are baptised. So once again, the gospel is doing its work in people's lives, even in Sin City. Once again, we see God is behind Paul's work. Don't you love this quote in verse 9? One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision... He says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. It goes to show God's care for the lost, doesn't it? He had his people in Corinth, 
people that hadn't yet believed in God. But God knew who they were. He knew when they would come to him. And he wanted them to come to him. And he wanted Paul to tell them about him. So friends, let this be an encouragement for us that we might believe that God has many people in this city and seek to reach out to them with God's news, trusting the power of the gospel to work in their lives. So we've seen today the gospel has a great impact in this continent of Europe when Paul goes across there on his second missionary journey. See, once again, do we remember in our lives the power of the gospel? Paul says it is like dynamite. In Romans, he says it is the power of God, dunamis, dynamite, the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we tell people the gospel, his love will explode in their hearts. We've got to believe in this great power. Or do we not believe in it and perhaps think God's not really going to change people and that's just not going to happen? Last year I was reading a book, the biography of Jonathan Edwards. He was an American preacher, they say the greatest American theologian in the 1700s during the Great Awakening, the Great Revivals. Edwards was preaching in Northampton in America. And he was a contemporary of the great George Whitfield, who was the great revival preacher. And in this book about Edwards's life, it says that George Whitfield was preaching in those areas near where he lived. And the scene of people coming to hear Whitfield was amazing. They'd be preaching to 40,000 people in the open fields. And uh, people looking on would just see thousands and thousands of people on horseback coming through rivers, coming over hills with their carriages, with their horses, coming to hear George Whitfield in the open fields. And the, as the story goes, when George Whitfield or John Wesley or those guys would preach during the revivals, even the coal miners, their tears of conversion would wash away the coal from their faces. The gospel is powerful, friends. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who will believe. You know, in the book of Revelation, we get these visions, these images of a great multitude worshipping God, people from every tribe and nation and language worshipping him. Can you imagine 40,000 people on Kalina Oval worshipping God? 100,000, 100 million, a billion. God can do it and he will do it as we preach the gospel. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We have to believe in his power to bring people to faith. So friends, there's the challenge. Will we trust in the power of the gospel? It's not our job to convert people. It's just our job to tell people, to tell people the good news, to tell them the age-old story of Jesus and his love. God will do the rest. That's his power. So let's believe that and let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the way that you used Paul and his missionary team to spread your kingdom throughout the world. We thank you for the power of your gospel to save. And we pray, Lord, that you might see fit to use us to minister your word in your places to other people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.